listening to the Island Christian Church of Holbrook podcast. This message is the third part of the series called Rediscovering the Gospel. Today's message, given on October 1st, 2017, is titled The Gospel and Desire. Jesus' death and resurrection touches every part of our life. Some of us make the I'll call it a mistake. I mean, it's not really a mistake because the gospel is the only way to begin the Christian life. But then some people kind of feel like, oh, yeah, the gospel, I got that down. That's like, you know, Christianity 101, and I'm ready for 102, 201, and all that advanced stuff. And some people try to think, you know, we can kind of leave the gospel behind. And we can't because the gospel should continue to shape every aspect of our lives and our relationships. So I would like to review for a moment, first of all. Okay, what is the gospel? I gave you four words that really talk about the gospel. And I want to just kind of go through this. I know it's been two weeks since we picked this up. So let me help you out. The first word is God. Okay, the gospel is all about God. God created us. God desires to have relationship with us, his created people. The second word is, anyone remember? Man or us, man, men and women. The, the second word is that because we have a problem. We all have inherited a sin problem. And if we're honest, we've done a pretty good job of our own on sinning. And that sin separated us from that relationship with God. And God holds us accountable for sin. And we cannot make ourselves right in God's eyes on our own. So the third word is Jesus. Jesus is God's solution to our sin problem. God sent his son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, never committed one sin. He died a horrible death on the cross in full payment for our sinfulness. And then God resurrected him from the dead. And that is that is just awesome and wonderful, and it shows that the sacrifice was sufficient for payment. And then the fourth word is response. It requires a response on our part. It's not just enough to know this as facts, because that will not correct the sin problem. We have to put our trust and stop trying to trust ourselves and what we can do and turn it into trusting Christ and what he has done, the completed work of Christ on the cross, to restore us and have faith in him and to repent, to have a change of mind and a change of action from serving sin to serving God. So that is kind of a little review of the gospel. Now, this week I heard some great quotes. You know, one of my favorite authors is Tim Keller, the pastor in Manhattan, and he said this. He said, religion can be described this way. Religion is, I obey, therefore I am accepted. That's religion. I obey, therefore I am accepted. But the gospel is different. The gospel is, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Do you see that difference? That difference is huge. It is significant. He also goes on to say a gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history, something that's been done for you that changes your status forever. 
Okay, this is a historical fact. This is not just some philosophy. Religion is kind of a do-good philosophy. You know, if I do better than everyone else, or at least better than half people, and if God grades on the curve, I guess I'm okay. And if I haven't done good, then, well, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, I'd rather die with the sinners than, or wait, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints, right? Remember that Billy Joel song, you know? Sorry, that's bad, that is just bad news there. The gospel is the life and salvation for people. So anyway, today we are going to, and, and through this series, my goal is this. I want us to become fluent in the gospel, not just you know, have like, oh, yeah, the gospel, I got that. But I want us to really understand all the different facets and uh, ramifications of the gospel and how it continues to direct the life of someone. So today's focus, we're going to look at the second word of those four. We're going to be looking at the man or the us word, okay? And we're going to be dealing with the sin issue. And I think if we're honest, we could probably all say that sin usually begins when we desire something we don't have or something we shouldn't have. Does that sound about right? Sin usually begins when we desire something we don't have or something we shouldn't have. Okay? Now, it, it, you know, this is not something unique to us because misplaced desire started in the beginning. And in fact, this message is called The Gospel and Desires. Misplaced desire started in the Garden of Eden because, you see, Adam and Eve were created by God to enjoy and to worship God. But the deceiver came along and essentially said, you can't trust God. He can't be trusted. Instead, trust me and take your life into your own hands for your own happiness. And, of course, we know what happened as a result of that. That's called the fall. That is when sin entered into the world. But it was actually the first act of idolatry in history because they put their trust and their future in something other than God. Here's how we can encapsulate, encapsulate today's message. Sin begins with misplaced strong desires. Sin begins with misplaced, strong desires. Now, the good news of the gospel is that God provided the solution for our sin, and of course, the, the solution is Jesus. Okay, now, it's interesting because over the past, you know, bunch of years, I'd say it probably started in the 60s, but it's, I think it's taken a resurgence now, there's an, a, a, a lot of interest in Eastern religion and Eastern philosophies. And one of the things that they teach is they teach that desire is the cause of all human suffering because no desire can ever be fulfilled. Okay, so they basically teach you need to eliminate desire. Now, that's not what the Bible says at all because didn't Jesus say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Okay, Jesus promises satisfaction of desires 
as long as we are going after hunger and thirst, right? That's desire, isn't it? Of course it is. Anyone hungry now? You got to wait, okay? We'll be done in a little while. Nicole has a box of Cheerios. You can see her afterwards if you want. Maybe we even have some refreshments next door. I don't know. But uh, anyway, desires, hunger and thirst is something that looks to be satisfied. And the Eastern mystics and people, they're saying, no, no, no. We have to eliminate the desires because they can't be fulfilled anyway. Okay? But Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So desire is good as long as we desire the right thing. Where we get in trouble is when we don't desire the right thing or we desire something else. Okay, now, I have a question. Um, I've asked this question before, so if you've heard me say this, just be quiet. But anyone else, what would you say is the opposite of Christianity? Atheism, yeah, right? Right? I, I think that sounds good on the surface, but I want to propose that the opposite of Christianity is not atheism, because atheism is, I don't believe there is a God, okay? The opposite of Christianity is idolatry. The opposite is saying, well, you know, I'm going to trust something other than God, because everyone trusts something. Some of you trust in your, the size of your bank account. Some of you trust in your position at work. Some of you trust in your family. And those are all okay things, you know, provided they're in the right proportion, okay? But idolatry is the opposite of Christianity. In fact, Martin Luther, the great reformer, and uh, by the way, we're coming up on the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation, you know? Um, it's on Halloween, much better thing to celebrate. Celebrate the Reformation. But anyway, I'm not going to go there right now. But anyway, listen. So what he said was this. He said that underneath every behavioral sin is the sin of idolatry. Okay, now, when we think of idolatry, some of us probably think of those, you know, uh, statues and things that are carved or made out of metal. And, you know, people bow down and worship them. And I mean, yeah, that is idolatry kind of as it existed in Bible times. But we have modern idols, and I don't want to go into this too much. I've done this at other times before. But we all have idols, and we have different things that we struggle with. But we might not realize that the root cause of the struggle could be idolatry. You see, I don't know if you realize this, but idolatry in the Old Testament is represented by the same concept in the New Testament as strong desire. There's a Greek word, epithumia, which means strong desire. It's like, I gotta have this. And that is the same concept. Of course, the Old Testament was in Hebrew, but when it was translated into Greek, they used the same word because it talked about the same concept. So when, when you hear idolatry, think of strong desires. Or when you think of strong desires, think of idolatry. So we're going to take a look at when the law was revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai. So would you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20? We're going to look at a familiar passage. Most of you know or have heard of the Ten Commandments. Yes? Ten Commandments? Okay, so we're going to look at three of them today. <clears throat> we're going to start in verse 2 of Exodus 20. God says this, I am the Lord your God 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God is declaring, this is who I am. And then he says this, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. I'm it. I'm the only one. Anything else isn't a God. You can't have anything else, but you might even try to set something up as a God, an object of worship. You can't have that. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, okay, or any likeness of anything that is under heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. So what is commandments number one and commandment number two talking about? It's really talking about idolatry. It's either trying to say, well, something or someone is God rather than the one God, Okay, that's an idol. And the other one is don't make anything that could take the place of God, that you'll, you know, bow down and worship, or it might look like something else. And that, you know, these are commandments against this. Now, let, let's talk about the word graven image for a while. Why do you think a graven image is so dangerous? Well, has anyone seen God? We've seen Jesus, not us, but people have seen Jesus. And Jesus, according to the book of Colossians, verse, chapter 1, verse 15, says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Remember the disciples were asking Jesus, you know, show me the Father and that'll be good enough. And he goes, haven't I been with you? You've seen me. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, they're not the same in essence, okay? But they are the same in, you know, in the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so it's so dangerous to put any image of God other than Christ in his place because that image robs glory from God. You know, people have these crazy ideas. I mean, even a friend of mine posted a song that was popular back in the day. And they said, what if God was one of us? You know, and it's this whole thing. And I mean, it's a cutie song, but, you know, there's so much just bad thoughts out there and things because people don't really understand God. And that's why it is so important that we get the gospel crystal clear so that we can also proclaim a crystal clear message to people who desperately need the hope that it provides to save people from sins. So, so commandments one and two are about idolatry. Now let's look at the 10th commandment. Jump down to verse 17. God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, for us who don't live in a farming culture, you know, you're like, 
okay, maybe the house I could dig or maybe the wife is a real knockout, you know, but ox, why would I covet an ox? But, of course, what were oxen in those days? They were the machinery that would get stuff done because, you know, they didn't have cars. So that'd be like saying, you know, do not cover your neighbor's supercharged Hemi pickup, you know, because that's what it's, that's what it's talking about there. It's different. Don't covet that or the donkey. I, I you know. We're not going to go down the donkey thing. I just think donkeys are really cute, you know. And uh, Anne has a friend that has some donkeys, and I just can't believe what a donkey makes a sound like. I used to think donkeys go, hee-haw, hee-haw. Well, if you want to just amuse yourself, go on YouTube and just put in donkey sounds, and you will hear what I'm talking about. We'll, we'll move on from here. We don't have time for that now. But we're not supposed to covet donkeys, okay? Because the donkey was also a means of commerce because the donkey was transportation. You know, I don't know anybody. Maybe Jeremy could ride an ox or something. But, you know, anybody could ride a donkey, you know. Well, is that true? No, okay. <laughs> I'll stop while I'm ahead. But anyway, we're not supposed to covet these things And do you realize this is also a commandment against idolatry? Okay, because when covet is you want something that you don't have. You want something that somebody else has. And then you start to, you know, that becomes all you think about. You know, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 3, verse 5, he tells us to put to death, and then he gives a whole list of things that we're to put to death in our lives. But he lists one, he says, and we're to put to death covetousness. And then he puts a little explanation on it. He says, which is idolatry. So when we want something that we don't got, or we want something that somebody else has, okay, we're essentially setting that up as an idol as well. So do you see the the connection between coveting things or people with idolatry? You see, we all have idols. And there are modern idols that we all struggle with because sin begins with misplaced strong desires. Tim Keller said this. He says, when we turn good things into ultimate things, we've made an idol. Now, the problem that we have is these strong desires or these idols are not always bad things. There are some good things. Some people make an idol out of their kids. You know, they want the best for their kids. I want the best for my kids. But if that becomes the ultimate thing, if that becomes the thing that drives all my attention, my finances, my time, all that, well, what have I done? If I make something an ultimate thing, I've now created an idol. Some people want job security. I wish I had better job security, you know? That's something that we all wish we had. But if we make job security an ultimate thing, then, you know, we've made an idol. And we might, in fact, do some things that might not be in the best interest, but we're trying to save our skin and our job, okay? Some people want um, proper recognition for something that they did. I get that. But some people are so driven by recognition that they're just broken and crushed when somebody doesn't recognize something, and that reveals that perhaps they've set up an idol. So there's lots of things that might even be a good thing, but if we make it an ultimate thing, we've created an idol. Okay? Um, The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect 
that it can satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. When something is really good and we make it an ultimate thing, we're hoping that that is going to be the thing that will satisfy our deepest needs and hopes. Would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 115? This is a great psalm. And I'd like to start reading at verse 2. Why should the nation say, where is their God? You know, let me just pause here. Have you ever been in a situation where something maybe not so good has happened to you, and then somebody else who doesn't love God comes up to you and go, yeah, why'd God let that one happen to you? Right? Where's God in this one? You know, this is what it's talking about. Why should the nation say, where is their God? And then the psalmist turns around and he says in verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And now he draws a contrast between God and idols. Verse 4, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. He's actually dissing the idols right now. He's saying they were created by people. They've got mouths, but can't speak. They have eyes, but don't see. They have ears, but don't hear. They have noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but don't feel. They have feet, but don't walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. What is he basically saying here? He's saying, what good are they? They're good for nothing. And then I love verse 8. Verse 8 is the key of this passage. It says, those who make them will become like them. And so do all who trust in them. Do you see that concept there? What the thing you trust in, you're going to become like that thing. The thing you trust in, you are going to eventually become like that thing. It was funny because a, a guy who uh, grew up on the mission field in Italy um, uh, then came back here to the States and then he was in the South for a while and he, of course, great guy. Um, we spoke with him. In fact, there's an insert in your bulletin about the ministry that he and his wife are going to be doing over uh, helping with the sex trafficking in Thailand. But Chris came up and he spoke, and now he's been in the South for a while, and he started to talk. Um, he picked up that Southern accent. And I'm like, dude, you're from Italy. Why are you talking like a Southerner there? But But what happens is when you're in an environment for some time, you start to pick up the characteristics of that environment. And when you are so surrounded or so focused on something that is what you're looking for, your joy and your happiness, you're going to, according to this verse, you are going to become like that thing. So we need to be careful with this. Now, there's a huge difference between idols and Jesus. I would hope there's lots of them, but here's one in particular. Idols demand our love our trust, and our obedience. You know, and, and just look at it. You know, if you have something that you're really just, that's your ultimate thing, that's your focus, you know, take a look at how you spend your money. Well, it's probably on that. Take a look at how you spend your time. Well, it's probably with that. Take a look at what you think about when you're on break. Well, you're probably thinking about that. And like I said, it might not be a bad thing, but if it's become an ultimate thing, it demands our love, our trust, and our obedience. But Jesus gave his life to us freely and invites us 
to receive his gift of grace. Do you see the difference? There's a huge difference there. i got to ask you, have you received Jesus' gift of salvation? If you haven't, I want to talk with you after the service. I want you to leave here today knowing that you've been, you can be made right with God through forgiveness of sins. Okay, I want to look at just one more passage. Would you turn to the letter of 1 John? This is not the Gospel of John. This is the letter of 1 John chapter 5. And there's a really interesting connection. I shared this once before, but I, I think it's so interesting I want to share it again. The very last verse of 1 John has something to do that isn't mentioned anywhere else in the whole letter. There's a word that's used in this verse, and that's the only time it's mentioned in the whole letter. So I want you to, when we read it, I want you to think, is this, you know, just something that's out of place, or is there some sort of a connection? Here it goes. 1 John 5.21 says this, Little children, keep yourself from idols. Okay? You, lo- you can look on your own later. Idols does not come up anywhere else in that, in that uh, book. So is that last verse out of place? You know, or is he changing topics? No, I don't think so. I think it undergirds the teachings of that entire letter. Because remember what I said? Underneath every behavioral sin is the sin of idolatry. Okay? And now back up one verse. Look at verse 20. Okay? I think this is huge because it says, And we know that the Son of God, that's Jesus, has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. There's a huge distinction there. You see, idols are just an imitation. Jesus is the real We can know Jesus, but idols try to distract us from Jesus. So idols and strong desires, same thing. Sin begins with misplaced strong desires. Now, there is a book called uh, Discovering the Power in the Gospel by J.D. Greer, and he has in this something that I want to share this morning. He's calling this the idolatry detector test, okay? The idolatry detector test. And these are some questions that I want you to just briefly think about and, you know, don't jot down the question. You won't have enough time. But if something comes to mind when I ask you these questions, just jot it down in your bulletin, whatever comes to mind, okay? So I'm going to ask a series of, I think there are eight questions, okay? The first one is, what one thing do you most hope is in your future? What one thing do you most hope is in your future? The questions will be up on the screen as well. Just if something comes to mind, write it down. Not going to spend a lot of time, so just if nothing comes, just move on. Question two, what is the one thing you most worry about losing? What is the one thing you most worry about losing? Number three, if you could change one thing about yourself now, 
what would it be? If you could change one thing about yourself now, what would it be? <coughs> Number four, what thing have you sacrificed most for, or what person? What thing or person have you sacrificed most for? Now, those are four kind of basic questions. You know, I don't know if you got the same thing for more than one of them. But now we're going to ask four deeper questions. Okay, so these might be a little bit more tricky, and I'll explain them if need be. Who is there in your life that you feel like you can't forgive? And why? Who in your life... Who is there in your life that you feel you can't forgive and why? Let me explain this one. You see, sometimes when we feel like we can't forgive someone, it's because they've hurt us in some way. We feel that they owe us something or maybe they took something away from us and we feel that we can't be happy without that thing. And that's why we're having a hard time forgiving them. So if there's someone that you feel that you can't forgive, just write them down, and that might indicate. Remember I said these are the little deeper questions, so that might indicate and detect an idol. Next question. When do you feel the most significant? When do you feel the most significant? reason why we're asking this question is because we are supposed to draw our identity and our approval from Jesus and what he did in the completed work on the cross. And yet if we're feeling most significant from something else, that could indicate a disconnect or a misplacement here. Next question. What triggers depression in you? What triggers depression in you. Now, I understand there are chemical reasons for depression, and I'm not trying to belittle that in any way or put that down, but depression can be triggered when something we think is essential for life and happiness is denied us. Some people, when something that they feel is essential for their life and their happiness, when it is taken away or denied them, they just can't get out of bed. And so that might be an indicator. What triggers depression in you? Next question. Where do you turn for comfort when things are not going well? Where do you turn for comfort when things are not going well? Ice cream! <laughs> Chocolate! Food! Booze, all sorts of things, drugs, sex. People turn to all different things. What do you turn for comfort when things are not going well? That could reveal an island. So, was there something in common on these questions? If there is, perhaps it has detected an idol or a strong desire 
in your life. Now, there's a problem that the philosopher Pascal, back in, I think, 1600s, long, long time ago, he said this famous quote, you've probably heard it before, he said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every human which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. Okay? And what happens when there's a vacuum? It sucks anything into it that can get sucked in. And that's what happens with us when our desires are not desires for Christ. We can have something else that is meant to be filled by God, but we can let something else try to be a poor substitute for him, and we let that thing become an ultimate thing in our life, and we're in trouble with this. We search for something to fulfill our deepest desires, but nothing on earth works because the vacuum was created by the absence of God. Anything we substitute for God in that place will leave us still looking and yearning. Brother Augustine, another old guy, put it this way. He says, you have made us for yourself, Lord. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So, Maybe think of those questions that I gave you. Look them over, you know, your answers to them afterwards. And if there is something, perhaps that's a point of prayer that you need to consider. And it's not just enough to say, I'm going to put this thing aside. Because how many of you have tried to put something aside just by willpower? And, you know, I mean, some of you have strong wills and can do it, but most of you can't. That's not how it was meant to be done. Let me share something. Today I'm quoting some, you know, old people, you know, who've been dead a long time. I, I, I like that. Here's another one. Thomas Chalmers, you've probably never heard of him, but he wrote in the 1700s or the early 1800s. And he wrote a great article that I read a while ago, and I, I don't have time to read it all. But the article, what a great title. Let me tell you the title, and then I'm going to read just three quotes from it. The article is called The Expulsive Power of a New New Affection. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he's basically going to say it's not enough to just try to put something aside. But in order to expel something, we need to have a new affection that essentially expels the old. He says this, The best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one. And by the love of what is good, to expel the love of what is evil. See how that works? We start to love God. I mean, what is the greatest commandment, right? You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Okay? So as we start to have a greater affection for something that's new and good, then that helps us to expel the old and the evil. Okay? Chalmers goes on to say, quote number two, Thus it is that the freer the gospel, the more sanctifying is the gospel, and the more it is received as a doctrine of grace, the more it will be felt as a doctrine according to godliness. 
This is one of the secrets of the Christian life. You see that? As we realize that God didn't have to give us forgiveness. This is all an act of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. As we realize that this was a free gift, the more we realize that, the more it will be felt as a doctrine according to how we should live and godliness. But if we start to think that, oh yeah, God deserved to save me, or I have something in myself that warrants salvation, then all of a sudden, you know, we're going to become legalists, or we're going to just become, you know, free run and do anything we want. We're going to go on one of those, you know, we're going to fall into one of those traps and errors, and we're going to miss out on the beauty of the gospel because of the free gift of Christ in response to what he has done then we can freely live according to the way he wants. The third quote he has is this. Chalmers says, And never does the sinner find within himself so mighty a moral transformation as when under the belief that he is saved by grace, he feels constrained thereby to offer his heart as a devoted thing and to deny the ungodliness. You see what's happening? That's transformation. So this is what I want you to begin to do this week. I want you to identify any lesser desires that you have, and I want you to replace the lesser desires for or with a desire for Jesus. Replace lesser desires with a desire for Jesus. How do we replace these desires? Well, remember, sin begins with misplaced strong desires. Start by prayerfully confessing these to God. And ask him to forgive you. Know that God loves you and accepts you, not because of what you've done, but on the merit of Jesus and Jesus alone. And know that when the lesser desires become ultimate desires, we are putting another blockage between us and God. Only by Jesus' sacrifice and our repenting can these be removed. And then you can begin to experience what Jesus meant when he said in his own words, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. That's when it really happens. And, you know, this is so important also if we're going to be effective at communicating the life-giving message of the gospel to others. As I mentioned earlier, I gave that message at Northport last week, a prayer request from Jesus And, you know, that was Jesus' desire to have people come to saving faith in himself. And we know that because he actually asked his followers to pray, Lord of the harvest, send out laborers into the harvest. And back in August, I asked you to begin praying that. And if you've been praying it, keep going. We need that. But if not, I would encourage you to begin praying that because ultimately... That's what is needed in Long Island. Laborers to labor in the field with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you and remind you to do this. So let's redirect our desires away from things and redirect them towards Christ and the spread of his glorious gospel. And as we truly believe the gospel, we will experience the joy of salvation that lasts into eternity instead of the fleeting pleasures that come from lesser 
desires. 